passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Uh, for the rest of us, we will be in uh, the book of 1 Samuel. So um, this is our second to last week in 1 Samuel. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up uh, chapter 29. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, as you're opening up, I just want to, to take a moment and, and ask uh, a question that really is kind of the, the question that um, the, the last few chapters of the book of 1 Samuel wrestling with, dealing with, and that is this question about when you feel like you are far from God, like God is distant from you, what do you do? How do you respond in those moments? And as we look at 1 Samuel, last week we looked at chapter 28, this morning chapters 29 and 30, and then next week we'll look at chapter 31. All of these are dealing with how David and Saul both deal with this question. And there's a lot of parallels between David and Saul in the end of 1 Samuel. Both of them have made a mess of their lives. Two weeks ago, we were looking at David in chapter 27, the beginning of chapter 28. We saw that, that he was tired, he was exhausted from, from running from Saul, and, and he's tired of having to wait on God to, to do what God has said that he would do. And so he decides in this moment of weakness to, to take matters into his own hands, to try to save himself rather than waiting on, trusting on God. And, and he becomes a mercenary for a pagan king. And for the next 16 months, this is what we saw in chapter 27, this seems to really work quite well for David. David, as he is living in the land of, of the Philistines, is met with success, and yet it's, it's 16 godless months. Chapter 27, there's no mention of God. God is absent from David's life. David has no qualms in that time, uh, no, no problem with, with slaughtering hundreds, maybe thousands of, of men, women, and children to cover his own back. There's no mention of God in chapter 27. David doesn't seem to care about that either because his, his focus is solely on himself. And the results, he, he can't argue with the results. He's, he's got this life where he's, he's finally got rest. He's finally got peace. He's finally getting some prosperity. And everything is going well until we get to the beginning of chapter 28. And then we see that the king of the Philistines says, it's time for you to join me in fighting against the people of Israel. Last week in chapter 28, we saw a very similar spot for, for Saul. Saul has lived his entire life pretty much, not giving a thought about what God thinks. And then he finds himself in this desperate moment. He's, a, he's about to go into battle against the Philistines. He's desperate, wondering what he should do. And he cries out to God for help. And God's silent. I said last week, that's a terrifying moment. I think that's more terrifying than the, the seance that takes place later on in chapter 28. It's this man who cries out to God, asking God for help, and God doesn't answer to him. And as we're going to see this morning, the end of chapter 20, or excuse me, the end of, of 1 Samuel, these chapters are all about, they're intertwined, showing us that there's a difference between David and Saul and how they handle these moments when, when they're far from God how they respond to the grace of God. 
Last week we saw that even though Saul was, was far from God, he didn't actually return to the Lord. He just wanted help in that moment rather than actually submitting his life to the Lord God. And he persists to keep God at arm's length. He's only interested in what he can get out of God. Now David has a similar moment. Just as as Saul was met with desperation, we'll see that David is met with desperation as well. Just as Saul was far from God, David is far from God as well. And the question as we look this morning at our text is, how will David respond? What will David do in this moment? That's what we're going to consider this morning. We're going to look at chapter 29, chapter 30. It's, it's one story over the course of these two chapters, and, and it really breaks apart into four different acts, if you will. So that's going to be our roadmap this morning as we look at this text. Before we do that, let's pause and pray for God's presence to be with us. Would you pray with me? Father, as, as we open your word this morning, we do ask that you would reveal to us your unfathomable grace. God, I ask that each of us here this morning, God, that when we find ourselves trapped in patterns of unbelief, because we all struggle with that from time to time, that when we find ourselves trapped in unbelief, that we, when we find ourselves running from you, that we would follow the footsteps of David in this passage that we would throw ourselves on the mercy of God, on the grace of God, this God, you, who delights to save his people. We ask that you would speak to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our story actually picks up right where we left off two weeks ago in chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. We see that David, again, is serving as this... this, um, mercenary. He's being called into service to go fight against his own people. And the question is, what will David do? And we see actually in chapter 29, he continues to run from God. That's the first part of this story starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Now, before we go too far, I think it's, worth, it's important for us to point out that uh, chapters 28 through 31 of the book of 1 Samuel, the ending of 1 Samuel, is not written in chronological order. It's actually written thematically. And so the events of chapter 29, the events of chapter 30, actually take place before the events that we looked at last week. Last week, chapter 28, we saw this moment that is the night before Saul dies. And here we're actually going back in time. We're going to go back to David, and we're going to look at what David is doing before that. I I think a map actually makes this clear. Let's go ahead and and throw a map up for us. We see here in in verse 1 that the the Philistines, they actually gather together at Aphek. That's located um, right here above this blue area. But in chapter 28, we saw that the Philistines were gathered at Shunem. That's all the way north, 40 miles north. And the Philistines are gathering there while the Israelites are gathered at Gilboa. And we saw in chapter 28 that this is the night before Saul dies. It would have been impossible for the Israelites, excuse me, the Philistines, to make that 40-mile journey over the course of one day and then completely destroy and defeat the Israelite army, which is what we see in chapter 31. So what we're doing is we're actually going back in time here in chapter 29 and 30. And the question, of course, that we should ask is why? Why does the author of 1 Samuel 
order things the way that he does. Well, and I think we've already we've looked at this, but, but he's intertwining the stories of Saul and David in order to point something out to us, to prove a point to us. That there are two paths before us when we find ourselves far from God. And it matters which path we walk down because those two paths lead in drastically different places. We must listen to this text, follow the example of David so that we can avoid the fates of Saul. So David in this moment, he, finally, he finds himself in this predicament. He's gathering with the Philistines. He's expected as a vassal of the Philistine king. He's expected to go fight the battles that this man is asking him to do. And the question, of course, is will David go? Will David fight against his own people? And Achish, the Philistine king, sure thinks so. He says, you know what? I, I trust David. Um, he's, he's worthy of my trust. He's going to go and kill his own people. But the rest of the Philistine leaders, they have their doubts. Verse 2. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by, hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us into battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow man reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? There's a bit of irony here in this passage, isn't there? Akish is completely fooled. David has, has deceived him into thinking that he is completely trustworthy, that he's been attacking the Israelites for the last year and a half. And so Akish actually goes to bat defending David in front of the other Philistines and says, you know what, we can trust him because he, he's been square with me. He's been straight with me. He's already betrayed his own people. And of course, we know there's nothing honorable about what David has been doing. He's been lying He's been slaughtering other people. He hasn't been slaughtering the people of Israel, but he's completely lied and deceived Achish in this moment. Now, the other Philistine leaders, they, they don't know David. They're deeply concerned, as they really should be. They're deeply concerned about having David and his men in their midst. They think it's a risk to have Philistines and Israelites fighting together, having these Israelites fight against their own people. They remember a generation earlier, 1 Samuel chapter 14, there were some Israelite mercenaries fighting for the Philistines, and then the moment that things started to go the way of the Israelites, the Israelites who were fighting for the Philistines actually betrayed the Philistines, attacked the Philistines in the midst of their camp, and this led to this huge victory for Israel. They said, we've seen this before, we don't want to put ourselves in the same spot. What's more, we remember who this David guy is. They sing songs about him. They say he slaughtered his tens of thousands, and we know most of those are Philistines. So there's no way we want him in our midst. We don't care how good of a fighter David might be. We don't care how much you trust him. Send him home. We don't want him anywhere near us. And so Achish in verse 6 
brings the disappointing news to David. Verse 6, then Achish called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in this campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Irony in these verses too, right? It starts with Achish calling God as his witness, a God that he doesn't believe in, say, I know you've been honest with me. No, David hasn't. That's the whole point. David's been lying. Achish comes to to David with this bad news. and says, I know you want to go and fight against your own people because you've been doing that for a long time. No, he hasn't. But I couldn't convince the other leaders of the Philistines to, to allow you in our company, and so it's time for you to go home. And we might wonder, well, why on earth, if this is what David wants, why does he push the issue? Why does he say, why? Why do I have to go home? And I think that the reason is, is because David actually, and I can't prove this from the text, it's, it's ambiguous, but I think it's because David actually wants to go to battle with the Philistines. It's not because he wants to attack the Israelites, it's because he wants to do exactly what the Philistine commanders were afraid of. David isn't actually considering fighting against Saul. That would be completely out of character for him. We saw in chapter 24, we saw in chapter 26, we saw with what he's been doing in chapter 27, he will not raise his hand against either Saul or the people of Israel. And yet, this is a moment in David's life where he has been focused on what he can do to save himself. He's not trusting in the Lord. He's not relying on God. He's thinking, you know what? I need to to do what I can to accomplish the things that need to be done. He's completely relying on himself. And so I think that David in this moment is actually hoping that he can go into battle so that he can betray the Philistines in the middle of battle. Again, I can't prove that, but I think that that fits in the context of what we're seeing here in chapters 27 through 31. Verse 9. And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So David's attempt to stay with the army doesn't work. Aki says, no, you, you have to go home. And so the Philistines, they march north to fight this final battle against the Israelites, this battle that we'll see next week in chapter 31 where Saul dies. But David and his men, they make the 50-mile journey home headed south. And before we continue, I want us to just consider what exactly we can learn From chapter 29, this godless text, God is is nowhere to be found. There's this throwaway oath by this pagan Akish, but except for that, God's, God's not here. 
except, of course, he is. This is yet another example in the book of 1 Samuel of how God is at work behind the scenes. How God, in his mercy, is controlling all things to save David from the Philistines as well as saving David from himself. But unlike what we've seen in the past, this is a moment where David is far from God, and yet God steps in in spite of that to save him, to spare him. And he does this through the Philistines. And we shouldn't be surprised that God is at work in this way because we've actually seen this before. In chapter 23, we saw God use the Philistines. They were attacking Israel, and in that exact moment that they attacked Israel providentially, it saves David from Saul, who's just about to catch him. And Saul is forced to go and fight this battle. And the God who uses the Philistines in their attack strategies is also the God who uses the reservations of the Philistine commanders to save David from himself. God uses anything and everything to accomplish his purposes. And that's really what these first few verses are teaching us. If we're listening, if we're paying attention here, it's this. If you are a child of God, then even in those moments of unbelief, God is at work for your good. That's the message of these first 11 verses. Even in your unbelief, God is at work for your good. Even if you find yourself as a child of God, wallowing in unbelief, even if you've abandoned God, God hasn't abandoned you. That doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for our actions, for our unbelief, for our sin. That doesn't mean that, it's, that God's guaranteeing that he will rescue us from tough spots, but it is a guarantee from God that he has not forsaken you, that he has not forgotten you even if you have forgotten him. Isn't that really what grace is? Grace is something that is completely undeserved. If you consider the last 16 months of David's life in this moment, he does not deserve to be rescued from the mess of the life that he has made. And thank God that God doesn't give us what we deserve. And so God in his mercy, he intervenes and he saves David from the consequences of his own actions, even in unbelief. If you are a child of God, if you are his son or daughter, he is at work for your good. Let's keep moving. David and his men, they make the journey back to Ziklag, this location where they have been living for the last 16 months. And that's the second part of this story, starting in verse 1 of chapter 30. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. 
So David and his men, they, they leave Ziklag. They go to this mustering of the Philistine army. They're all gone. There's no one left to defend Ziklag. The Amalekites are aware of this. They're raiders. And so they go and they attack Ziklag. While they're gone, they burn the city to the ground. They take all of the valuable possessions of David and his men. They take every single family member, every part or piece, uh, every animal that they have in their livestock, all of it taken by the Amalekites. Verse 3. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. So David and his men, they're, they're making the journey back to Ziklag. When they get to Ziklag, any hope of rest is, is dashed. And, and I, I just picture this scene as, as they're walking, as they're marching back south, hoping for rest. They see the smoke miles away, off in the distance, coming from Ziklag. And, and this leads to the sinking feeling in their stomachs. They're hoping against hope that there's some other explanation for that smoke. And they quicken their pace for those last few miles. And then they get there and they see that no one has been spared the despair of this moment. And that includes David in this moment. Just like everyone else, his family has been captured and, and there's not dead bodies here. No one has been killed and yet that's not much solace because they know what the Amalekites will do with those who have been taken captive. They've stolen away wives. They've stolen away children for the purpose of being slaves. And any chance of catching up with the Amalekites is very slim. The Amalekites were nomadic. They didn't stay in the same place for too long. And that meant their, their location was very hard to find, especially in the desert south of Ziklag. David and his men are overcome with grief. It says that they lose all their strength in their despair. And then David and his men, or David's men rather, they're, they're not just overcome with grief, but in their grief, they actually respond with anger. Verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. David is all alone. Earlier, when David despaired, Jonathan came and spoke with him, encouraged him, turned him back to the Lord. But now Jonathan is a hundred miles further north with his father preparing for a battle against the Philistines. Other times when David was not focusing on the Lord, Abigail stepped in and pointed him back to God. And yet now, in this moment, Abigail is somewhere to the south, perhaps already, according, or at least in David's mind, a slave. David's entire life has fallen apart. And for 16 months, he has ran from God. Everything seems to have been going well. His lies, 
his murder, his trusting in his own ingenuity for 16 months. Zero consequence. He's accumulated wealth. He has safety. He has peace. And no one's the wiser. But now, at long last, David's sin catches up to him. And he finds himself in this moment of despair. Where does he turn? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. For the first time in 16 months, David looks to God. First time in a year and a half because he is in this moment where he has nowhere else to turn, he turns to the Lord. And it may have taken his entire life hitting rock bottom for it to happen, but he at long last returns to the Lord. And you might be wondering, what exactly does it mean for David to strengthen himself in the Lord his God? And the answer is actually found by looking at another passage where a very similar phrase is used. Back in chapter 23, Jonathan comes to David and it says it strengthens his hand in God. And if we look back at chapter 23, we see what exactly that means when, when Jonathan strengthens David's hand in the Lord. He, he reminds him He points him back to God's word. He reminds David of what God has promised to him. And in spite of all of David's circumstances back in chapter 23, he says, you know what? Your life might not line up with this, but the God who has promised these things is faithful to deliver. And so when David does the exact same thing here in verse 6, when his life has fallen apart, where he has nowhere else to turn, he turns to the Lord And he says he strengthens himself in the Lord. It means he's done the exact same thing. He's saying, my life is a mess right now. It has nothing in common, God, with what you have promised to me. And yet, still, you are faithful and worth trusting. And I will do just that. David finally wakes up. He finally returns to the Lord. He turns his back on his unbelief and he's reminding himself that God is worthy of his trust. And you can do the exact same thing. When you despair, when your life is falling apart, even when you are overcome by unbelief, just like David here, you can turn back to the God of promises and you can say, even though my life may not line up with what you have promised in your word, I know that you are faithful. I know that you are good. And I know that you will do exactly what you have said that you would do. And so that's what David does to himself. And the question for us as we get to the end of verse 6 is, you know, that's, that's all well and good for David. That's exactly what he should do. But will God listen? 
Or will God say, you know what, David, that's, that's nice. Um, you're, you're on probation now. You need to serve a waiting period for me before I answer you, before you're actually welcomed back into my good graces. And we're given the answer starting in verse 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and his 400 men. 200 stay behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. Don't get caught up in the details here in this moment. David goes to the priest, he goes to Abiathar, and he asks him to ask God a question for him. And that's what this ephod is for. And rather than God giving David the cold shoulder, rather than, than God you know, saying, you know what, maybe come back in, in a couple weeks and then I'll give you an answer, God answers him in that moment. That there's no conditions here. There's no stipulations. There's no holding back from God. This response from God, we're given this incredible good news because the same thing is true for you too. That when you have nowhere else to turn, you can still turn to Jesus. When your life has fallen apart, you have nowhere else to turn, you can still turn to Jesus. David finds himself at the end of his rope, and where does he turn? He returns to the Lord. He returns to him with repentance. He returns to him with faith, and when you find yourself in a spot where you feel like you've been abandoned by every other person, and everything in your life is going as, as poorly as it possibly can, you can still turn to Jesus. He's not going to give up on you. He'll never give up on you. It doesn't matter if it's been 16 months or 60 years. Jesus will never give up on his people. And you can still turn to Jesus. And this moment, here in, in chapter 30, is, is the high point of this text. And, and it might be surprising because there's a whole lot of text left. But everything else in this chapter is a foregone conclusion. Ever since verse 8, here in verse 8, God answers, says this is what's going to happen. Everything else is a foregone conclusion. Well, God's already said that this is going to happen, and so, of course, it will happen. David returns to the Lord. God comes through because that's the type of God that he is. He's a promise-keeping God. And that's what we see in the next section of this story. And I just want to pause before we get into the rest of this chapter and say, you know what, the same thing is true for you as well. That this God is the exact same God today as he was back then, that he's still this promise-keeping God. And if you find yourself in a tough spot, if you find yourself in this moment where you're just shaking off the slumber of unbelief, you can be assured that God is a promise-keeping God. And that doesn't mean that your life is instantly going to become better like it does for David, at least temporarily. It doesn't mean that God is going to answer your prayers quickly or that God is going to answer them the way that you want. We're going to soon see that the events of verses 11 through 20 are miraculous. 
They're, they're absolutely miraculous. They're, they're miraculous in God's providence, that God is orchestrating things behind the scenes. They're miraculous in their timing, that, that this happens just over the course of three days, that David finds all of this loss, and then in just a couple days, he, he has everything back, that everyone's rescued. They're, they're miraculous in their scope as well, the totality of what happens. And this text isn't saying that, you know what, God is going to do the exact same thing for you, but it's saying that this is your God too. And it's a sign to you that even if it doesn't look the same, if it doesn't work out the same, the rest of the story means that you can be assured that he's a promise-keeping God. And so your faith should be strengthened by the rest of this chapter, that he has not forgotten you. Let's jump into verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Carathites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Notice what takes place. God has promised David that they will rescue their families in verse 8. David and his men set out. They have no idea where to go. The trail is three days cold at this point. They're they're going out into a desert, and they set off with with maybe a best guess, but, but their chances of finding anything are slim. But as luck would have it, and of course luck has nothing to do with it, they they come across this former slave, an Amalekite. And they don't even know it at that time. They just find this man who is sick, near death, and they nurse him back to health. It's not until after he's finally revived that that they find out, hey, this is exactly what they need. Someone who's going to point us to where we have to go. Continue in verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold... They were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. This text just tells us, you know what? God continues to be at work. The, the Amalekites are exactly where this young man said they would be. David and his men, they wait until morning, twilight, to attack. The fight lasts until evening. You might wonder, well, why does it say evening of the next day? Well, Jewish days started at the evening. So this is a battle that lasts all day, and the Israelite victory over the Amalekites is so complete that apart from 400 men who flee on camels, no one is left to to lift a finger against David by the end of the day. Verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. 
I said a few moments ago that the events of this chapter are miraculous in their providence, in their timing, and in their scope. We've already seen the, mirac- the miracle of providence. They, they just so happen to, to come across this Egyptian who shows them exactly where they need to go, that has the information that they exactly need. We've seen the miracle of timing, that this just takes place over the course of a few days after leaving Ziklag. They have everything back. Verses 18 through 20 show us the miracle of scope. Notice again what this text emphasizes here, how completely the Israelites recover everything that has been taken from them. Verse 18, it says, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. Verse 20, David brought back all. And in case that wasn't clear enough, sandwiched in between those two verses is verse 19 that says, nothing was missing. It's almost like the, the, the passage here is saying, do you get the point? Do you understand? This is astonishing. The Amalekites had cast aside this Egyptian because he was of no use to them, and yet not a single person of the, of the wives, the sons, and the daughters is killed, is left behind. They're having a huge party, a massive feast when David and his men find the Amalekites and you're telling me that not a single sheep is gone? It says that all of the spoil has been recovered. That means every single article of clothing that was taken, every single family heirloom, everything that was of value that the Amalekites had taken, it's still there. The scope of God's provision for David is a miracle. And this should not at all surprise us because that's exactly what God said he would do. It's not as clear for us in English as it is in the Hebrew, but notice what God promises David back in verse 8. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And God answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue, which is this Hebrew word, not Saul. Verse 18, David recovered, not Saul, all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued, not Saul, his two wives. Can you see what the text is saying? The God who makes promises keeps promises. The victory here is total, it's miraculous because God keeps his promises. And as we come to the end of this third section of the story, I think that's exactly what we need to be reminded of that God has done and God will do the impossible in order to keep his promises. God already has done the impossible. God, already, God will do the impossible to keep his promises. There is nothing that will stop God from keeping his word to you. He's already done the impossible. I've, I was thinking about Christmas this week. Maybe it's because I knew it was going to be cold in here. And that's what Christmas is about. It's this moment where we celebrate God doing the impossible in order to keep his word to his creation. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says that the incarnation is the highest miracle of the Christian faith. He doesn't say that to diminish the importance of the cross or the resurrection. He just says the incarnation, God becoming man, makes everything else possible. He says this about Christmas, about Jesus coming to earth. But in fact... 
the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us is the Christian or Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christmas claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man and that he took humanity without the loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. And if the immortal Son of God did really submit to take death, it is not strange that such a death should have saving significance for a doomed race. God has already done the impossible to keep his promises to you, knowing that no one was worthy to stand before him, that no one was righteous before him, that all of us were deserving of judgment. God instead took on flesh, became a human being so that he might keep his promises. God has already done the impossible and you can be assured that he will keep doing the impossible to keep those promises. And you would think that that's a great place to end. That this text should end right here, ending with God, his faithfulness, he keeps his promises, there's a miracle, and yet we have another 10 verses. 10 verses that are filled with names that are really hard to pronounce. So what do we make of this? Well, I think these are crucial verses because David has spent the last 16 months of his life depending on himself, relying on himself. It is easy for David to fall back into old habits. So these last 10 verses are about how David responds in the midst of victory. Spoiler alert, he gets it. God gets the glory. Verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as, he share is, for as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. A lot going on in those verses. The heart of them is found in verse 23. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Why should there be no difference and reward for those who did all of the battle or fighting and those who remained in the rear guard? It's because the battle belongs to the Lord himself. God is the one who won the battle. So if the spoils are not spread out evenly among the troops, it would not just be stealing from fellow Israelites. It also would be robbing God of his glory as though those who actually fought were the ones who who actually accomplished the victory all on their own. And this same heart is, is reiterated in the next section as well, verses 26 through the end of the chapter. Pray for me as I pr- pronounce these names. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoils to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir and Arer, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, 
in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeramelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Boashan, in Athok, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Oh, praise God. <laughs> Notice, <laughs> that should not be your takeaway. <laughs> Notice how David describes the gifts that he gives to all of these different cities, all of these different villages and towns. He, he uses theological terms here. He says, these gifts are from the enemies of the Lord. And this is our last picture. If you just zoom out for a moment, this is the last picture of that, that we have of David in the book of 1 Samuel. We will not see David again until we get, Lord willing, next year when we get into 2 Samuel. And this is our last picture of David. Remember what 1 Samuel is about. It's about our need for a king, but not just our need for a king. It's, it's for a specific type of king, a king who is going to point us to God himself, the king of glory. And David is far from a perfect man. But he's a forgiven man. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus says he who has been forgiven much loves much, and that's exactly what we see from David here, this man who has experienced the highest highs and the lowest lows, and this is a man who is in desperate need of grace. And yet he also understands the goodness of a God who offers that grace. And that's the way, or that's the reason why he responds the way that he does here in this close to this chapter. And I think we're forced to ask a question of ourselves as well. What about us when we receive God's grace? How will we, how will we respond? How will you respond to God's never ending grace? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you drank from the wells of his goodness? of this never-ending never grace, how will you respond? With a life that gives him glory or with a life that is consumed with self? And as we look at David, that's what the rest of his life is about. It vacillates between these two moments. He's, he's consumed with the glory of God, no matter the cost at some moments, and at other times, he's, he's all about his own glory. He's all about what he wants, and it's going to be this battle that exists in David's life for the rest of his life, and, it, and it's going to exist in our lives too. It always exists, this battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self, and which will prevail. And yet there's this, this truth that David understands, one that we also have to understand. It's crucial for us to know. It's the message of this story of chapter 29 and 30, and it's this. When you are trapped in unbelief, when you are trapped in sin, when you are far from God, his grace will welcome you back period. No ands, ifs, or buts. Grace is not too good to be true. There's no such thing as being too far gone for this God. When you find yourself trapped in unbelief, 
or sin, or you feel like you are far from God, His grace will always welcome you back. You may feel like God won't welcome you back, or that He shouldn't welcome you back. You don't get a say in the matter. It's His choice, not yours. If He wants to welcome you back, He will. And this passage makes it so very clear that that is exactly what he wants to do when we return to him. At the cross, God has proven he is faithful. At the cross, God has proven that he will be faithful forever moving forward. When you are trapped in unbelief and are far from God, God's grace will always welcome you you back. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the promises of this passage. Thank you for the heartbeat of Scripture, which is this. that you are a God who does the impossible to bring people back. Help us if we find ourselves trapped in unbelief to not think that grace is too good to be true, but instead to, to delight in the goodness of a loving, gracious God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.